closing theme is by Midnight Syndicate. For more dark instrumental music like it, visit www.midnightsyndicate.com or find them on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or Alexa. Hello and welcome back to Freshly Brewed Noir. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Summer. And this is episode nine, The Velisca Axe Murders. But first, we have some exciting news. So great. Yes, we have to say we have our first cult member. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we do. His name is JR. We want to give a shout out to him because he's already been great, like giving us a bunch of content and joining our cult. So we thank you for that. He stepped Uh, up to the plate. He did. Yeah. And I mean, as rite of passage, we have to change his name. And Summer, you have the hierarchy, right? I do have the hierarchy written down. And so uh, new members that are first accepted into the cult, we give them a brew name because it's freshly brewed noir. So we have to drop the end of his name and add the suffix ooh. Okay. So he would be what? J-Roo? J-Roo. Well, we like that. Yeah, that's the first level. So he's at the first level, but I see him moving up in the ranks pretty quickly. I think he'll be a latte soon. Okay, so the next one is latte. Latte, yes. And then it will be cappuccino and then Americano, that'll be the highest anyone can go in our cult because obviously caffeine is reserved for the leaders, Jennifer and I. So (laughs) Jennifer is Janine and I'm Samin and that's caffeine. Yes. (laughs) Our names mixed with caffeine. So there you have it. The the Noirians. There's our coffee cult. So welcome. If you would like to join, just reach reach out, out. Let us know. You know, and we will dub you with your new name. That's right. Again, we don't require anything from you except just have to like coffee. Yes, or caffeine. Like, do we accept tea drinkers? I think so. I mean, it's caffeine. Sure. Okay. Well, I'm, then... I'm drinking green tea right now. Yes, we accept tea drinkers. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> seemed a little hesitant. We may have to push your membership I know past Jennifer like... <laughs> tea drinkers. <laughs> it's definitely, you know, it's on the, on the border. We, okay. We're not sure. It's not as hardcore, so you may not move up in the ranks as quickly, but we'll accept you. Yeah, we'll have to give you some kind of tea name. <laughs> we'll think of some tea names for next time. <laughs> yeah, that's in the works, though. Okay. So, but anyway, this is another of the fun haunting ones, right? Well, it is a murder, too. It's a, a oh. brutal murder, but we do talk about some hauntings. So this is like a, a full caffeinated one, huh? I would say it's not as fully caffeinated as Israel Keys or anything like that, but there's some pretty severe brutality. Okay. I mean, X murders when you think of an axe murder that's probably one of the most brutal right right unless it's like a machete that's like the next <laughs> that's even level. worse <laughs> yeah like the top tier yeah so this was early 20th century axe murders were going on i had no idea let's get into the story let's do it okay so for this episode we are going to cover the Velisca, iowa axe murders from 1912 so long before the term serial killer or home invasion were well known to the public six children and two adults were brutally murdered in a quiet farming community the crime is unsolved to this day but several suspects were identified at the time we will go over the crime the potential suspects and the hauntings at the home that are said to still be taking place since the murders Ooh. <laughs> 
<laughs> Jennifer loves a good haunting. Oh, yeah. I'm always excited for these. We may have to visit this house one time. Oh, well, we I mean, apparently you can, right? Yeah, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> Josiah and Sarah Moore bought a cute farmhouse in Villisca, Iowa in 1903. They had four children together between the ages of 11 and 5. Herman, Catherine, Boyd, and Paul. On the night of June 9th, 1912, many of the children in town participated in the Presbyterian Church's Children's Day program, which began around 8 p.m. and ended at 9.30 p.m. Catherine Moore had invited her friends, Lena and Ina Mae Stillinger, to sleep over after the program ended. Sarah Moore coordinated the Children's Day event and all of the Moore children along with the Stillinger sisters, were in the program. Josiah Moore sat in the congregation during the program, and it is said that the Moore family, along with the Stillinger sisters, walked home from the program together. It is believed that they entered the Moore home sometime between 9.45 p.m. and 10 o'clock p.m. that night. The following morning on June 10, 1912, at approximately 5 a.m., Mary Peckman, the Moore's next-door neighbor, stepped into her yard to hang laundry. Around 7 a.m., she realized that none of the Moores were outside to begin their chores and that the house seemed unusually still. Well, thank goodness for her nosy, <laughs> her nosy neighbors. Her nosy neighbor. It's like, oh, right. why are they not out yes. doing their chores? Right. And well, they lived on a farm too. So I guess she expected them to be out letting out the animals and doing their chores. Sure. So between 7 and 8 a.m., Mary Peckman approached the house and knocked on the door. When she received no response, she attempted to open the door, but it was locked. Mary let out the Moore's chickens and then placed a call to Josiah's brother, Ross Moore. Why what? did she let out the chickens? Because this is a farm, Jennifer. There's chickens that need to be let out. So. I, I really have no idea. I'm just guessing chickens don't want to stay cooped up. Probably to use the restroom. I don't know. I guess I would always assume chickens just like did that go. in their pen. I'm sure they do that too, but maybe you don't want that done in there a lot because that's more cleaning, right? So you want to let them out so they can graze and eat bugs. I don't know. Maybe they had that kind of relationship where she just could open the pen and the let chicken. the chickens oh, out. They did have that relationship. Clearly. <laughs> Okay. If I was ever on a farm and you need to let the chickens out for me, you would, right? I would. But we're best friends. This is your neighbor. Oh, they're not out doing their chores. Let me, I guess. So in, in modern day times, it would be like your neighbor maybe bringing your trash can down on trash day if you forget. So think of it that way. I guess. Chickens, it just seems too personal to you. <laughs> it does. Okay. Like, oh, leave my chickens alone. Okay. Don't Let's touch not... Jennifer's chickens, Because they could run away. I don't know. Well, I think they were fenced in. Are we? We're totally going off on the sidelines, <laughs> are we? <laughs> We're trying to figure out the chicken situation. The chicken situation. Was, it was being handled by Miss Peckman. Is that funny, too? That her name is... <laughs> no, no pun intended. Right. <laughs> what follows is considered to be one of the most mismanaged murder investigations ever. It will make Phoebe's investigation look top-notch. Oh. <laughs> well... Just uh, wait. Just wait. It, yeah, Buttersworth. It'll look like he did a decent job after you hear about this one. Okay. I'm curious now. Okay. When Ross Moore, the brother, arrived at the home, he attempted to look through a window and shout to the family to see if he could wake one of them. When that failed, he used a spare key to open the door of the home. Miss Peckman only went as far as the porch. She did not enter the home. And then Ross Moore entered the home and was in the parlor when he opened the door to the first bedroom. There he saw two bodies on the bed with dark stains on their clothing. He immediately went to the porch and instructed Miss Peckman to call the sheriff. Shortly after, the city marshal, Hank Horton, arrived at the home with a physician, Dr. Cooper, and Mr. Ewing. They stepped inside the first bedroom of the parlor. They saw the two dead bodies in the bed and then proceeded upstairs where they discovered Josiah and Sarah's lifeless bodies in their bed. They had also been brutally attacked. Then they proceeded to the other upstairs bedrooms where they counted the dead bodies of the Moore children. Each was also bludgeoned to death in their bed. 
minutes. Every person in the house had been brutally murdered, their skulls crushed so badly that their faces were mostly unrecognizable. Ugh. Josiah, 43 years old, Sarah Montgomery Moore, 39, Herman Moore, 11, Catherine Moore, 9, Boyd Moore, 7, Paul Moore, 5, as well as the Stillinger sisters, Lena, 12, and Ina May, 8, had all been brutally murdered in their beds. News traveled quickly through the small town regarding the murders, and neighbors quickly swarmed the house. Around 9 a.m., the county coroner, Dr. Lindquist, arrived at the scene. This is now hours after the murders had taken place, though. It is said that up to a hundred people traipsed through the house, gawking at the bodies and even taking things from the crime scene, such as a piece of skull from the victims, before the Villisca National Guard finally arrived around noon to block off the area and secure the crime scene from further evidence contamination. What are people taking right. skulls for? Well, just one person, it was said that one person took a piece of skull. Like why? Souvenir? I, I don't know. And why are you traipsing around a murder scene? Like, you're just, all right, let me just scope it out. Something to do in town that means. Nosy people. Very <laughs> nosy. And, and how terrible that they walked all over this crime scene. Yeah, I mean everything's contaminated at this point, right? It is. And some things were missing. And I guess they moved the axe around and everything it was just bad. So oh, gosh. Again, at least Buttersworth, he eventually... At some point. Took them hours after <laughs> 100 people walked through. Right. It wasn't until 10 o'clock p.m. that evening that the coroner's jury would enter the Moore home to view the bodies. On June 11th, 1912, around 2 a.m., the coroner and county attorney gave permission for the undertaker to have the bodies transported from the home to the fire station, which had been set up as a temporary morgue. Because obviously the morgue, in a small town, you don't expect eight people to die at once. So they had a small place. Yeah. I mean, that's a mass murder, right? It is. Yeah. And assuming that's uncommon. Sort of. We'll get into that. Okay. Later that day, the coroner's jury convened for the inquest and called 14 witnesses to testify. The witnesses were Mary Peckman, the neighbor, Ed Sully, an employee of Josiah's who helped tend to the animals sometimes. Doctor. Oh, okay. Well, and he worked at the store that Josiah owned too. Okay, well, he makes sense. <laughs> he can let the animals out. Yes. Ms. Peckman, she just <laughs> takes it upon herself. I think she overstepped there with those chickens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Dr. Clark Cooper, who was the first physician to enter the Moore home after the murders. Mrs. Jessie Moore, the wife of Josiah's brother, Ross Moore. Dr. Williams, the physician that actually examined the bodies. Edward Landers, a summer visitor to his mother's home, which was a few houses down from the Moore house. Ross Moore, Josiah's brother, and the first person to enter the Moore house after the murders. Fenwick Moore, another brother of Josiah's. Villisca Marshall, Hank Horton, Josiah's nephew, John Lee Van Gilder. Harry Moore, another brother of Josiah's. Blanche Stillinger, sister of Lena and Ina May and Joseph Stillinger, father of the murdered Stillinger girls, and Charles Moore, another brother of Josiah's. He had a big family. Wow. So they were all called. Not everything that is in this is helpful. Like when they had the sister come up to testify, she was just testifying that Josiah Moore had called and asked if the girls could spend the night, and she didn't really offer anything that would help in the investigation. So some of these don't really help with the investigation, but here are some details from the inquest that we should speak about. Josiah's brother, Charles, testified that Josiah Josiah would lock up the house from the inside in the evenings prior to going to bed. That leads us to think, was an intruder already inside, yeah. possibly hiding in the attic? Yeah, that's his pattern. That 
kind of makes sense that mm -hmm. you would think that there was an intruder in there. I think somebody might have been. When the sheriff had gone into the home, no key was found. He locks the house up from the inside at night. And, and the key's gone. And the key's gone and the house is still locked up after the murders. Yeah. I mean, that does lead you to suspect that somebody was hiding in someone there. Someone hid there and maybe took the key with them when yep. they left. Locked it. Exactly. Mary Peckman testified that she went to bed at 8 p.m. that evening. Ed Sully, one of Josiah's employees at the store, was called by Mary and came over on the 10th to tend to the animals. So see, now is it okay? Mary was like, hey, come over, tend to the animals. No, you still don't like Mary's involvement. <laughs> well, I don't know why she's always involved. Because <laughs> she's one of those kinds of neighbors. <laughs> but, I mean, come on, where's the boundary here? And too bad she wasn't awake earlier to maybe call the sheriff when they were being murdered, but... Where were you, where were you then? She was sleeping. She went to bed at 8. Must be a heavy sleeper. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean. So when Ed Sully was asked during the inquest about possible enemies Josiah had, Ed stated that Josiah had mentioned a brother-in-law that could have been a threat. Ed stated, referring to Josiah, said, I got a brother-in-law that don't like me. Said he would get even with me sometime. And the brother-in-law he was referring to was Sam Moyer. Family ties. Mm. Mm. When Dr. Cooper was questioned about the condition of the bodies, he admitted that he did not touch the corpses. He stated, and it's hard to understand some of the clips from the inquest on him, but basically he's stating that the bedding was really stiff uh, around the heads and blood in the brains that had fallen on the pillow were Ugh. contracted and he said it'll dry. He said it creates this like perfect jelly and the blood clots were dry. So he was just observing. He didn't actually physically examine the bodies at all, but he said this is what he observed. Um, and he estimated that the Moors and the Stillinger girls had been dead for at least five to six hours based on the jelly-like consistency by the brain, the blood. So they think maybe at midnight was mm -hmm. possibly when they yes. were murdered. And then the brains, he just looked at them and can kind of tell like by the texture. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then the stuff around the bed that had fallen out of the head, which have, is so gross. Have you <laughs> ever seen like a brain just out? I've seen, yes, I have in college. There was a, yes. You guys were opening up brains? Yeah. Dead body. It was gross. What? Yeah. It was no more frogs. What kind of? How kind of class was Bi this? Biological science. It was, um, I think it was anatomy. <laughs> they had... oh, and they were real brains. It, well, it was a real person. It was a whole person. A whole person? An entire dead, naked person. Yes. How did you feel about that? I mean... <laughs> It wasn't my favorite. I mean, I kind of found it interesting. Okay. But the brain was not jelly. Everything was dried up. So they in they put some type of uh, fluid to embalm them. And so, oh. yes, you cut it open and it was all dried up. So this was not the same situation. No. So this was jellied still. So he could tell that it was, I guess that's why he could tell that it was only five to six hours. I see. Yeah. And then Cooper also testified that he smelled no unusual or antiseptic odor in the house and that it seemed that the faces of the victims had been covered after they were murdered. He said he saw no clothes sticking into any of the wounds and in his superficial examination, he didn't see any holes in the pillows, in the sheets, which if somebody's being murdered by what they thought was an axe, if a sheet was over them at that time, there'd be holes in the sheet. There'd be right. tons of blood on the sheets, but he said there wasn't. And so that led him to believe it was pulled up over after that horrific crime happened. Huh. Mm -hmm. So he bashed their heads in with the axe. Yes. And then covered their face. Yes. 
do you think that was because he didn't want to, or he or she did not want to see that scene in front of them? Or were they ashamed? Or Some people think that, like in the Victorian era, there was this belief that you had to cover mirrors and faces of dead people, and like their spirits could go into a mirror after they were dead. And so it could have been like an old Victorian belief that they still had and but he just committed this crime so it's hard to believe that he would be scared of like the superstition. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That is so weird. Isn't that weird? I don't get it. Usually when something like that brutal happens, first of all it seems personal. And then, why would you care about the way the body looks after? Right. Why would you respect... After you've smashed their faces in, why do you care that they're covered? I'm you just perplexed. smashed their face in. I don't know. What if they were on drugs and they were starting to come down from that? And they were like, oh, whoops. Uh. It just seems <laughs> just... so, like, planned. They, yeah. Like, you killed all these people in their bed. So maybe Usually it's a ritual on... thing. A ritualistic type. Like, yeah, I'll murder you, but I'm going to respect your body after it's gone and cover it. I need more details. I'll try and give you more details. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Williams was the second physician to enter the home and the one that actually examined the bodies. He testified that all of the heads had been beaten in. The room upstairs where the more children had been sleeping had blood spattered everywhere and on everything, he said. It was all over the pillows and sheets, and the heads had all been covered with clothing or bedding, again, apparently after the murders. When asked about the possibility of sexual assault on any of the victims, Dr. Williams stated that he did not notice any evidence of it. But this is later contradicted by some other things we'll go into. Mr. Edward Landers, who was visiting his mother's home three doors down from the Moore's home, testified that he heard a noise that evening which sounded like, quote, one boy hooting for another on the outside somewhere. And Hooting? Hooting, like, whoo. Oh. Or... What? <laughs> or, Is that how people call for each other? What? Wait, wait. I don't know how, how do guys hoot. Hoot, 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 Maybe that was a the trend back then. Like getting somebody's attention. Okay, so me and my brothers would be outside, and you're hide and seek or something like that. You know, try and get somebody's attention, and you make a little call, a little noise. Okay, a bird call. Yeah, exactly. I wonder why that was like a normal thing, though. Why do people? Why won't you just talk to me? Well, because if they're planning to murder somebody, <laughs> right? I guess so. You're not going to be like, hey, Joe, so um, are we ready to go inside and murder these people? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Jim. <laughs> be okay. right there. So the bird calls could, yeah, that could be the signal. A signal, yeah. You would think maybe if there's like a flashlight, you just... But they, did they, did have, they flash- have flashlights back then? <laughs> Maybe not. I don't think so. Maybe lanterns. They had lanterns, so yeah, no battery-powered flashlights, so it'd be holding a lantern. And if they're hiding in the dark, they don't want to use a lantern to signal. Now I'm going to be suspicious of every bird call. Yeah, watch out. <laughs> so the sound occurred at regular intervals. Landers, when pressed for a specific time during the testimony, he said it was around 11 p.m. that he thinks he heard all this. So about an hour before the murders. But then he stated after hearing about the murders the next morning, he thought that maybe he heard a woman moaning. I think the hooting lead us to believe there may have been more than one murderer. Well, I mean, that would make sense if they're hooting to someone else. Hoot, hoot, hoot. (laughs) I don't know if it sounds like that, but that's our hoot. (laughs) Okay, now let's go over what was found at the crime scene and the known facts of the case. These were collected from testimony from the inquest. All the doors were locked. All of the curtains had been drawn on all of the windows except for two, and on those, the windows had been covered by clothing belonging to the Moore family. Eight people had been bludgeoned to death, presumably with an axe that was left at the crime scene and that had belonged to Josiah. 
The axe was found in the room where the Stillinger girls were, and there was blood on the axe, and an attempt had been made to wipe it off. The ceilings in the rooms where the murders took place had gouge marks that were believed to have been made by the upswing of the axe. All of the victims' faces were covered with clothing or bedding after they were killed. All of the mirrors in the home were covered with cloths. The bodies of Lena and Ina Mae Stillinger were found in the downstairs bedroom of the parlor, and Ina was sleeping close to the wall with Lena on her right side. And this is something from Dr. Williams, and he said that it looks like Lena had kicked her foot out of the bed sideways and had her hand up under the pillow on the right side, but it was like kind of scooched down in the bed like a third of the way, almost like she had woken up when he came in to kill her. Yeah, when her killer came in. So, and Lena's nightgown was slid up and she was wearing no undergarments and there was a blood stain on the inside of her right knee, what the doctors assumed was a defensive wound on her arm. So it's believed by some that Lena was possibly molested and may have tried to defend herself from the attacker. That's so sad. Yeah, and she's the only one they believe woke up because of her positioning in bed and because she wasn't wearing any undergarments and it just seemed like that's true with her being sideways in the bed and the way she was struck that she may have woken up so josiah moore received the most blows to the face and was so badly bludgeoned that his eyes were missing thought to have been smashed to the back of his skull that has to be personal yeah and he's the only one that yes i remember you saying that the um the front blade was used on just josiah and then on everyone else it was like the the blunt the blunt side of the axe yes so mm-hmm. yeah it's got to be something personal between josiah it's, and whoever the it sounds like it right yeah i mean your face is already crushed basically and then your eyes is, they couldn't yeah his eyes were just gone That's terrible. God. And there was a pan of bloody water discovered on the kitchen table, as well as a plate of uneaten food. There was a slab of bacon on the floor in the downstairs bedroom lying near the axe. And this is in the room where the Stillinger girls were. See, I am very confused about this bacon situation. talk about the bacon. It weighed nearly two pounds and was wrapped in what was believed to be a dish towel. A second slab of bacon, about the same size, was found in the icebox. A kerosene lamp was found at the foot of the bed of Josiah and Sarah, a similar lamp was found at the foot of the bed where the Stillinger girls were. So like he was watching his crime and came back and looked at the bodies. And took out the bacon? Well, so some people believe that he used the bacon as a way to pleasure himself maybe after the murders. Really? Yeah. I didn't know. I mean, bacon is good for many things, but (laughs) I didn't know. It's good for one more thing, apparently. Uh, Yeah, I don't. I can't attest to that. I have no clue. (laughs) See, at first I thought, I was like, well, did he just want to take the bacon? I mean, bacon's good, so... But he just left it. Yeah. Very confused about why he would take it move it and leave it that if, yeah. if he's using it for those kind of situations he uh, might have used it for that kind of situation possibly oh god it's <laughs> pretty gross the pig did not die for that reason okay <laughs> <laughs> don't do that don't do that to they the have, pork they have other things for that <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh okay One of Sarah's shoes, which was found on Josiah's side of the bed, was found on its side. However, it had blood inside of it as well as under it. It's Lynn Quest, the coroner's assumption that the shoe had been upright when Josiah was first struck and that the blood ran off the bed into the shoe. He believed the killer later returned to the bed to inflict additional blows and subsequently knocked the shoe over. 
are all of these blows just to the head or are they like full body? Just to the head. I just don't know what to think about that. So he came back again. He already attacked, came back again to attack they, the, the head one more time. Yes, they think he came back uh, to attack Josiah again. Wow. Because he had the most blows to the head and his face was completely unrecognizable, they say. What did he do? Well, we'll get into that. You had spoken about this, but doctors do estimate the time of death as somewhere shortly after midnight. Okay. Well, that makes sense if they looked at that brain and could tell. <laughs> I would not know looking at a brain. I'd be like, well, that thing looks Well, now you know. <laughs> now you know if it's jelly. Five, five to hours. six hours. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So no one was ever convicted of the murders. So let's go over the suspects. Oh, yeah. The first suspect, uh, many that have studied the case believe Frank F. Jones was responsible for the Moore family and the Stillinger girls' deaths. He was a prominent Villisca resident and an Iowa state senator at the time. Josiah had worked for Jones at his store for several years before starting his own company in 1908. According to Villisca residents, Jones was extremely angry that Moore had left to start his own company and that he had taken the very lucrative John Deere franchise with him. Detective Wilkerson of the Burns Detective Agency openly accused Jones and his son of hiring a hitman named William Mansfield to kill Josiah Moore. Is that Mansfield? This right here is Mr. Jones, the senator. Ah, so he didn't want to get his hands dirty. No. That's what they he, think. No, he's not going to do that. He's going to hire someone to do it. Right. Yeah, because he's, he's working at the store. He has this lucrative John Deere franchise, all the tractors. That's John Deere. So he's holding a grudge because Josiah basically took all his clients, or his yeah. most lucrative clients. Right, and started his own store. And he was very successful in town. So Josiah was doing very well. Mr. Jones had a grudge about it. Was he bankrupt after this, or what? I mean, was he just left to the... I don't think he was bankrupt, Seems but... Seems like he's doing okay. He's the senator. How do you know he's doing okay by the picture? <laughs> by his sweet blazer and that tie? I mean, he, he looks like he's well right here. He I mean, does? besides his missing eyes. <laughs> It's a black and white copy, guys. <laughs> you know, this is, maybe this is pre-murder. He, he's flexing for the cameras. He's making it seem like he's got all this paperwork and he's busy, but really he's struggling. I guess they left on bad terms, sounds like. So that's suspect number one. Mm. Number two, of course, is William Mansfield. And he's the hitman. According to Detective Wilkerson, Mansfield, an alleged cocaine addict and murderer, was hired by Jones to kill Josiah Moore. Further supporting this theory is the fact that Mansfield was suspected of murdering his wife, infant child, father-in-law, and mother-in-law in Blue Island, Illinois, on July 5th, 1914, two years after the Villisca murders, with an axe. He killed his family with an axe? Yeah. Does it say why? Was he on drugs and... Like, he's on lots of drugs. Well... And he's a murderer, Jennifer. <laughs> well, was he dubbed a murderer after Mur he murdered murder his family? No, he was a murderer before that. He was a hitman, so that's why they hired him. Gosh. Allegedly. Okay. Well, dang. I mean, they're all dead. Nobody's gonna, you know, come after us for saying this, but allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> right. <laughs> Nothing is proven. Nope, it's not. Wilkerson also believes Manfield was responsible for the axe murders committed in Paola, Kansas, just four days before the Velisca murders, and of the murders of of two women in Aurora, Colorado. According to Wilkerson, all of the murders were committed in the same manner, which would point to the same person committing them. In each of these murders, the victims were killed violently with an axe. The mirrors in the homes were covered with cloth. 
A burning lamp was left at the foot of the bed of the murder victims, and a basin was found in the kitchen where the killer washed off the blood after committing the murders. In addition, each of the cities could be reached by train. There were also no fingerprints found at any of the crime scenes, which led Wilkerson to conclude that Mansfield wore gloves during his crimes since he knew his fingerprints were on file at the Federal Military Prison in Leavenworth. Wilkerson stated that he could also place Mansfield in the area of each murder the night they occurred. Wilkerson was able to convince a grand jury to open an investigation in 1916, and Mansfield was arrested and brought to Kansas City. Payroll records ended up providing an alibi for Mansfield, which placed him in Illinois at the time of the Villisca murders. Mansfield was released for lack of evidence and filed a civil suit against Wilkerson and was awarded a little over $2,200. Wilkerson believed that pressure from Jones, a state senator, resulted in Mansfield's release. R.H. Thorpe, a restaurant man from Shenandoah, who had identified Mansfield as the man he saw the morning after the murder boarding a train at Clarinda, stated that the man, Mansfield, said he had walked from Villisca. Then, a Mrs. Vina Tompkins of Marshalltown was said to have been on her way to testify that she heard three men in the woods plotting the murder of the Moore family a short time before the killings. So they were not hooting. They could have been hooting later. <laughs> okay. The premeditated talk. This is pre-hoot. Pre-hoot. Yes. Okay. Right. They're, they're chatting about it. But yeah. Okay. Like one hoot, you come over here. Three hoots, we're ready. You know. Like two hoots and then we're, let's go. Exactly. We're headed in there. Right. That would line up. Those two are kind of linked with obviously Mansfield being the hired hitman from And this Jones. is is this him? That's him. I mean, with that unibrow, you have to be a hitman. What? <laughs> I mean, look how unhappy he is. He just looks like someone you'd hire. I mean, he just needs to clean those brows and he'll be fine. And maybe smile. It's a bad picture. I mean, like, like we talked about in Dyatlov, you know. Did they take good pictures back then? Uh, this know. guy did not. Well, you said what's it, Jones was good. You thought Jones was looking Well, that's true. Great. I mean, with, but he has a blazer on, so... And, and a tie. With a blazer, how can you go wrong? Yeah, you can't. You throw in a blazer, you can conquer the world. Yeah. <laughs> he looks intimidating, not gonna lie. He does look like he could kill people with an axe. Let's get into Reverend George Kelly. We just need to see his arms. <laughs> oh, to see if he could, he was like strong enough to pick up an axe and swing it around? Yes. But they said he was a cocaine addict. Probably pick up anything. Oh, with that drug induced adrenaline. Exactly. Yeah. You know? oh, well, maybe we don't need to see his Remember, arms. Israel Keys wasn't a big guy. He was tall, but he just was very strong. I guess so. But he didn't use an axe. That jerk. No. <laughs> we won't get into it. He's had enough of our time. Right. All right, let's get into Reverend George Kelly, since I don't have pictures of Mansfield's arms for Jennifer. <laughs> so Reverend George Kelly was another prime suspect at the time. He was a traveling preacher who settled down in Macedonia, Iowa, in 1912 with his wife. Kelly had been invited to attend the Children's Day program on June 9th, 1912, putting him in the area, and had departed in the early morning hours of June 10th. In 1917, Kelly was arrested and charged with the murder of one of the victims of the Villisca Axe murders after his confession to police. However, he later recanted. In the first trial against Kelly, the jury was deadlocked 11 to 1. And in the second trial, he was acquitted on all charges. And I did find an article that talked about Kelly and how he would ask women and even young girls to pose nude for him. He would put ads in the paper. He was That's also gross. seen, yeah, he was also seen peering into a window of somebody's home. What? Yeah, so it sounds like he, 
had some creepy tendencies, but does that make him a murderer? No. And he's, you want to talk about arms? This guy's scrawny. There's plenty of pictures of him. Tiny man, thin arms. Maybe I don't think he could be an axe and murder eight people. Yeah, he just sounds like maybe he was just a peeping Tom and gross. Yeah. I mean, he's got a blazer on in here, but he doesn't. No. He doesn't work it like Jones, huh? No. <laughs> <laughs> Another theory is that it was a serial killer. A theory presented by federal officer M.W. McClurry. Is it McClurry? McClurry? McClurry. McClurry? <laughs> <laughs> really? Huh? Okay. Was that Henry Moore, with no relation to Josiah Moore, was the killer responsible for the Velisca murders? as well as over 20 other murders that had been committed in the Midwest around that same time. Henry Moore was convicted of the murders of his mother and maternal grandmother in Columbia, Missouri, just months after the murders in Villisca. And his weapon was an axe. Is axe just weapon of choice in these times? I guess in the early 20th century on a farm, you're killing with an axe. Yes. Guns were not popular, I mean, they were huh? there, but there was literally 22 people killed with axes during this time. That's brutal. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And then Henry Moore, he started working for the railroad in 1912, and Velisca sat on the main line of the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad. So he could have had, like, easy... Easy access. Yeah. Would you, what do we think about him? I think it's possible. Is he a serial killer? One person does believe he was a serial killer. A federal officer believes that he did them all. Okay, but he was never convicted. He was convicted of the murders of his mother and maternal grandmother, yes. But that's the only one. Okay. The only two. So the others are just suspected then. Yes. Gotcha. It sounds like this could be like the first case of a serial killer. I don't know if we have answers as to why they would target that family. Well, and it sounds like there were tons of random murders with axes throughout the Midwest. And so... It could have been him just trying to, like Keyes did, feed his need to kill people. And he would just travel, find somebody, find a family, kill them, get back on the train, head on home. Yeah. To me, it's just so strange how, if it's one person, like why they would target a whole family. But maybe that's just me. I mean, they're outnumbered, but I guess they have weapons and things like they have an axe. So if you have an axe really do anything (laughs) so if you have a blazer and an axe (laughs) that's what we've learned in this episode (laughs) i think that's a possibility i don't think kelly reverend kelly is i don't think he did it i think he just needs some help (laughs) (laughs) um well he needed his peeping tom yes i do think though the jones and the mansfield one's a good one too just the fact that it seems so personal, right? that would make sense. That, that makes the most sense to me. To me too, because it would throw you over to going with Mansfield and Jones because Josiah, it was personal between Jones and Josiah, and he had the most blows to the face. It was more brutal on him. Yeah. I don't think if it was random, they would just take out all what? their aggression on just one, one victim. Right, right. We agree on the theory that I think it's so. probably Mansfield. I think so, yeah. We still don't know his arm situation, but we're assuming. (laughs) We're going to Google Mansfield's arms after this so Jennifer can see if he could have picked up an axe. Right. (laughs) So now let's get into the hauntings. Ooh, yes. The spooky stuff. Yes, because the house still stands in Villisca, Iowa. It was purchased in 1994 by Darwin and Martha Lynn of Corning, Iowa, and it was restored to the original condition at the time of the murders. So they were totally thinking... Okay, there's a market for this. People want to know about these murders. Let's restore it.
restore it to its original condition in 1912. And the house is listed as a historic place and it's open for tours. You can go Tuesday through Sunday and it's cheap. It's like $10 for an adult. Seniors, $5. Oh, really? (laughs) Senior discount? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And they have overnights. Those are pricey though. Those are like 428 bucks and up for six guests. And each additional guest, it says, is 75. That's quite pricey. That's pricey. And I wouldn't want to stay there overnight, but the owners encourage photography, videotaping during your stay, and request guests to share anything good. And the site reads, visits by paranormal investigators have provided audio, video, and photographic proof of paranormal activity. Tours have been cut short by children's voices, falling lamps, moving ladders, and flying objects. Psychics have confirmed the presence of spirits dwelling in the home, and many have actually communicated with them, and skeptics have left believers. So is this like confirmed? Is there photo evidence of stuff? You can look up videos of things, but confirmed. You know how I feel about confirmed. (laughs) (laughs) When we say confirmed. (laughs) I mean, I would like Zach Bagan confirmed, okay? Oh. We need Zach Bagan to go live in this house. (laughs) Yeah. Does he have a documentary on this? He doesn't. No. It's good. I would go and do a day tour with you. I would not stay overnight. No. Do they have functioning bathrooms and things like that? No, I don't think they do. And they don't have lights either. So I think you have... No, wait. They have electricity now, but still no running water. So you have to like go outside to use an outhouse type thing. Like a porta potty. Pay $400 to use a porta potty? You know I don't. That's the real experience. We will not do that. (laughs) They want to take you back. And it's very drafty, they say, closer to fall. And then obviously in the early spring. So you have to like bundle up because at night it gets really cold. How creepy. Gosh. I mean, no running water that's a Mm -hmm. horror story right there (laughs) i don't know if i could do it well listen to what happened to one group this was on november 7th 2014 robert larson larson (laughs) larson robert larson your georgia roots are coming out Robert was visiting visiting the Axe Murder House with a group of friends. They were apparently there for a recreational paranormal investigation, according to the Montgomery. Recreational? Recreational. Like us. We would go just for recreation, right? Oh, I mean, we're doing that in October, right? We are doing that in October. Stay tuned for our Sleepy Hollow podcast. Oh, yeah. Plug that. Live from the bridge. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Or the cemetery. Ooh. Ooh. Okay. We digress. So, yes, they were there for recreational paranormal investigation. And according to the Montgomery County Sheriff, Joe Sampson, he stated, From my understanding, he was alone in the northwest bedroom and the rest of the party was outside. And he called for help on the mobile two-way radios. So, oh, like walkie-talkies? Yeah. So they have, yeah, we should definitely get some of those, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> for sure. Are we searching for, like, paranormal stuff? I mean, if we go there, should we not? I'll have my camera charged. Don't worry. Okay, good. So his friends found him stabbed in the chest from an apparently self-inflicted wound. They called 911, and he was brought to a nearby hospital before being taken by helicopter to a medical center in Omaha. According to the Montgomery County Police Report, the incident happened around 12.45 a.m., which, as we know, is said to be the approximate time that the 1912 murders took place. Stabbed in the chest. Self-inflicted. Self-inflicted. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah. That's intense. See, I mean, first... But first, don't get separated from your party if you're investigating a murder house. I would agree with this. And yes. why did he have a knife in a murder house? 
There's right. a lot, there's a lot of questions from? I have. I don't know, but... So, was it just determined that it was a suicide? That's no, a... he lived, uh, but he... Oh. Yeah, it Why didn't say that he that? died, but he just... I, was it, like, the Zach Bagans thing, and he was taken over by some possession? He was possessed. Maybe. Oh, my gosh. That's... I don't see anyone in their right mind just doing that no. for fun. No. So... <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs> Unless they were, like, tripping hard on some LSD acid. But still, do I don't think many people just stab themselves. But see, if you're in a ghost house, a murder house, mm-hmm. and then you are tripping on something, that might be a recipe for a disaster. Might be, yeah, like you said, opening yourself up to those things. Yeah. Well, Jennifer and I don't partake in the recreational drugs, and we will mm-hmm. not have a margarita until after our tour oh, in gosh. Sleepy Hollow. <laughs> I might need one beforehand just to get through it. I don't know. Just for me to convince you to walk through the doors. <laughs> so, a 2004 documentary called Villisca Living with a Mystery was directed by Kelly Rundle. They go into the murders, the suspects, and the influence the murders had on the town's personal and political relationships. So their main consultant was this doctor, Edward Epperly, and he's a historian. He's now a retired professor, but he actually has done research on the Villisca murders since he was in college. He even traveled to Villisca, where he interviewed Dr. Cooper, who was the first physician to actually look at the bodies at the morgue. He was still alive? Yes, he was. And he still recalled all that information? I imagine that's one thing you would never forget. I get, yeah, you're right. That's you know, a traumatizing experience. Right, a small town like that, and you're called to the scene of eight people brutally murdered with an axe, so he probably never forgot that. Yeah. Dr. Epperly also co-wrote a book with Tammy and Kelly Rundle called 1912 Villisca, Iowa Axe Murders, Dope Sheet which is what he calls the most interesting document associated with the 1912 Villisca Axe Murders. So the dope sheet was actually this report by Detective Wilkerson, which from what he says about it, it sounds like it was fact meets loads of fiction, but it was the basis for the grand jury indictment of Mansfield oh, wow. in 1917 and why many of Villisca believed Jones had been the man that caused the murders in the Moore home. So, I guess, was that never followed through? Like, they just didn't have enough evidence to... Apparently, with his documentation from work, they said that he couldn't have been there. But, I mean, I think somebody could easily falsify payroll records. Oh, yeah, for his own business? Right. Yes, like somebody absolutely. Could fa- and you know Jones probably had a hand in helping him falsify documents, if that was the case. Exactly. Because Mansfield's probably like, you better get me off of this or I'll I'll spill. You're the one that hired me. Yeah, I'm sure he had connections. Yeah. You know how that works. Mm-hmm. I but, mean, that's so to this day, it's still unsolved, huh? Still unsolved. Yep. Those unsolved ones, they always get you. I know. Like, like, I just want answers. Right. And of course, you know, every killer's obviously dead now, so we'll never know, maybe. Gosh, these are uh, these are always like the good spooky ones that yeah. just keep you thinking. Mm-hmm. I love these. I'm always excited when you do the hauntings. And the, I mean, murders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a murder slash haunting. So there's a lot to take in. We'll have to, we'll have to do a tour one day of the Villisca Axe murder house. A day tour. Day tour for sure. I don't think I'm up for the... Nope, not staying the, the night. night tour. Not into that. Might have like haunted chickens there. Oh, oh no. <laughs> I just don't know. Jennifer wakes up. Don't let the chickens out. <laughs> Stay away from my chickens. <laughs> Maybe one day when we'll... When we're in, what is it, Iowa? Yeah, it's in Iowa. So when we're in the Midwest, (laughs) whenever that will be, we will have to stop by the merger house. Yeah, if if it still has that, like, creepy aura about it. I bet it does. 
I mean, is it fixed up? Do you know? They restored it to the original way it was in 1912. They even have the original beds. And you can, supposedly, some people say you can still see the gouge marks in the ceiling where the murderer would the axe up into the air and then strike down so you can see those gouge marks still in the ceiling from the axe. That's intense. And you said, um, when we were talking about this case, I think you said this story took over for the Titanic sinking, right? It bumped the Titanic from the front page of the news because the Titanic sunk in April of 1912. And of course, that was a huge news story back then. And it was on the front page for months. And this story actually bumped it off of the front page because it was so horrific. So horrific. And it's a big story that, I mean, nobody knew who did it. So they're like, are these people still out there? It's a small town and they're all just farming community, good people. They're not expecting this to happen. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the Velisca Axe murders. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I enjoyed it. It was fun researching it. There's tons of information about it. I was like, wow, these show notes. I didn't expect there to be so much information. I thought it would be kind of a quick little half-calf episode, and it ended up being a lot of info. And I didn't even read everything. There's books on it. Like I said, there's that documentary. I really wanted to get my hands on the dope sheet, but I couldn't find it to purchase it. The dope sheet just sounds like... Sounds dope. Yeah, (laughs) dope AF. (laughs) (laughs) I really want to get my hand. If I ever do, we'll have to read that. It sounds like it's entertaining at the very least. Yeah, and for it to be the basis of the indictment, I'm shocked. Yeah. Yeah, but then again, he wasn't convicted, so... Yeah, it didn't go forward. Didn't go forward, and a lot of it is because there was a lot of fiction in it, I guess. So Wilkerson well, was it's passionate. Based on fiction. You know, I don't know <laughs> if that should be your basis. <laughs> it shouldn't be in the legal community. Correct. Yes, in the court, you should not base things on fiction, but... We know it, this. It did get him personally. indicted. So what's next on the agenda? Oh, we have another serial killer in the works. I know we said we didn't know when we'd do another one, but... Now we know. So soon. (laughs) (laughs) And so who will it be? Uh, Michael Madison from Cleveland, Ohio. You know, that is where um, Anthony Sowell, Sowell. Oh, the Cleveland Strangler. Yes. Okay. That's where he was from. And also Ariel Castro. Oh, Those are like some big ones that we know. Yeah. Terrible human. Cleveland... I don't know what's going on over there, but... We're about to find out about this one, though, right? Okay. So, stay tuned. Next episode. Episode 10. That's right. And Mm -hmm. remember, you can join our cult. Coffee cult, guys. It's it's available. (laughs) It is. We're always going to put it out there. Put out the feelers. Get your name. (laughs) Yes. We thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. If you have any suggestions, feel free to email us at freshlybrewednoir at gmail.com. And follow us on our socials at Freshly Brewed Noir on Facebook and Instagram. Yes. And give us five stars on iTunes. Give us a review. Let us know your real thoughts, as long as they're good thoughts. Right. <laughs> but, I mean, if you feel like trolling, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Stay caffeinated, and we'll see you next time. Bye.